Reading This is Reading Roulette, the world's only choose-your-own-adventure literary podcast. Hosted by Brian Ward, and I'm Bill Lyon, and this week, choose-your-own-adventure number four, Space and Beyond, by R.A. Montgomery. This is part, part one of two. Reading Choose, choose your own. Reading. Roulette. Choose your own. Adventure podcast. Excited about when I was a kid in, in Disney World. Mm-hmm. We're talking Orlando Disney World. Yeah. This monorail seemed like crazy from the future. It was like, oh, I'm riding the monorail. Yeah. Why did that impress me so much? Because I had been on a train before. What is the why monorail? What what the hell? <laughs> well, if if. So what we can say? Okay. And. Angry gods taught us anything. I think it was mostly the the look of it, like the design. A train has that boxy look, a, a movable box, right? You know, you think like hobos, like America, America. golden spikes. Yeah. But you see like a monorail, and you're already seeing this movement through dynamic space. So you're almost in that futuristic mode anyway. And they always look really clean. Yeah. Like, have you ever been on a monorail that had gang signs on it? No. And I, Somebody pissing on a monorail? No, of course not. That you nailed it with the hobo thing. I think the difference between a train and a monorail is, is, is a hobo and like a middle class American or Japanese tourist. I think it, it's, it, 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 it. Open the airlock. So you think like that monorail is almost putting your toe into the upper tax bracket? Sure. I think that's how I felt in 1983. Hell yeah. Yeah, this is where we're going. Mom and dad. Yeah. The dollar into the thing. Yeah, my dad back. was like, fuck that, we're flattening our own pennies. <laughs> you couldn't get away with that shit in Disney World with the monorail. <laughs> oh my God. That's why they elevated. Fresh, yeah. All right, well, speaking of flattening your own pennies. <laughs> that takes us right into the future. Yeah, so this week, doing a Choose Your Own Adventure number four, Space and Beyond by R.A. Montgomery. Brian. Oh, an epic, epic shit show. Oh, God. You could get drunk on it. This is like like a group meeting. Like an AA kind of thing, like a 12-step thing yeah. for RA. When it's all over, you'll still be alive. There's a lot of unburdening, I think, that we're going to have to... <laughs> you know, so I don't know if you want to just vomit all this out now, or do you want to parcel this out? I think we need to give a little preview of our wounds. I'm sorry this is happening. Like you just said, almost like a support group. This is for survivors of R.A. Montgomery. <laughs> we have an ongoing joke. I think we mentioned this a little bit. We might have touched on it, but but this is where it really comes into solidifies yeah. its place. I guess so. Uh, uh, you will be branded. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Easy E's just staring at you in like a hallway, or he's like, "You're gonna be changed." Hey, um, there's too much earth blood in me. So since childhood, you and I. Okay, have had an ongoing, almost inside joke about this author, R.A. Montgomery, since we were like, even just like five years old. And <laughs> it's I, one of my earliest memories. And I wondered if this joke was just us projecting, if we were just misremembering how bad these books were, but this really brings home how great maybe our taste was, or how <laughs> clearly bad his writing was, even back to a five-year-old. I think it it shows tremendous insight for you and I. This man has got a little problem. All right, Brian, so take us into space and beyond. Well... So you were born on a spaceship traveling between galaxies. An experienced intergalactic adventurer, you are now on a mission to a distant planet. 
Suddenly, on your screen, you see an alien spacecraft like nothing you've ever seen before. Will the aliens be hostile or friendly? There isn't much time. Should you fight and hope to drive them off or just go quietly with them? Here they come! If you decide to go willingly, turn to page 20. If you decide to fight, turn to page 22. And beyond. <laughs> Bill, this book is space and beyond logic, beyond reason, beyond <laughs> sense. I may even agree with you about all this. Actually, my view of this book uh, evolved. Mm. I've been reading their books. I'm going to kill you. You're joking. No, I'm interested in your, in your suffering. Tell me about the course. What kind of course did your suffering take reading Space and Beyond? Well, the first time I sat down and read this, I'm going to take like a nice big chunk out of this book. About 45 minutes in, I threw it down. I fucking hate this book. Mm. I was going to register my disgust. Bill, this book is awful. I hate it. I, I can't remember reading anything that gave me such a profound anger. It's visceral. It's visceral. It is. I it have is. a visceral in my, you know me, I'm a new agey guy. It, <laughs> in my solar plexus, my third chakra, yeah. it completely revolts against this guy's style of writing. It's like I feel a piercing pain in my third chakra. You're reading. Ring. Blackened. My mood ring blackens. My magic eight ball says outlook does not look good. My incense doesn't burn. Everything's bad. Incense goes back to, to the beginning. It goes back, yeah. It, it unburns. To a pristine stick or a cone. My experience of this is similar. I was talking to a, a lady who used to be a trader. Yeah, a little bit of a, tra a currency trader. She told me that she had a terrible experience. With this book? <laughs> where she lost all of her boss's money in a horrible trade one day. But she passed through the fear, she said, and her mind, she had achieved complete clarity. She had no fear, and she got all the money back within a few trades. And her boss said to her, you have the heart of a lion. Wow. I was very impressed by that. That was my experience of this book. I feel like because we've revisited it, mm -hmm. at some point I like almost blacked out <laughs> and I almost started to enjoy the pain. That's exactly where I was, I gonna, was gonna go with this. You're kidding, huh? You have guilty pleasures, mm -hmm. but this book is unique. Every book I've ever read in my life. I don't know if there's another example of this. It is crazy. What you get with Space and Beyond once you get past the initial revolt, disgust, psychological brutality and dismemberment, pummeling and the whole process, when you're trying to figure out why it's so terrible, take it apart and see what's massively deficient about the narrative and the construct and everything, the best thing that I could, could realize was that, you know, you have outsider art. Yes. You know, but outsider art stems from this need to create independently of your training or your circumstance or abilities or the materials at hand. And this book is definitely has that weird take of outsider art, but what's totally unique about it is you don't get the sense that this artist, Ari Montgomery, actually wants to create. It's totally, it, it's, it's such a puzzle to me that this book exists so bizarre and it came from somewhere it's almost like if he wrote it in in prison yeah i'm totally with you it's like outsider art 
but without a soul, like without the need to create. It's like yeah. uncreative, uncreative outsider on art. It's un to all of them. Uncreative, un outsider on art. It's inside a artistic. Yeah, it's a artistic, like almost like a morality. It's not yeah. immoral. It's, it's not immoral. It's, it's a artistic. Arti okay, so this book begins with a premise. One of the weakest premises of any book possibly ever. You were born on a spaceship traveling between galaxies. The spaceship is on a research mission. The crew of the spaceship includes people from five different galaxies. Your parents are not from the same galaxy, but both have features common to those found on the planet Earth in the Milky Way galaxy. Because you have been born in space, you may choose which galaxy and planet you wish to belong to and have citizenship in. Because the spaceship is traveling at a very great speed, you reach the Earth age of 18 years old in just three days and two hours. Now you must choose the planet Phonon in the galaxy of Pinium, or the planet Zermacroid in the galaxy of Uphos. Well, pretty much all of that is pointless, Bill. So we'll just start out by saying the whole entire premise is weak, shaky, and basically uh, sets you up for nothing. Incredibly notable. <laughs> you reach the Earth age of 18 years old in just three days and two hours. I did the math, as you know. Uh, the internet tells us the average length of time human sexual intercourse takes is 7.3 minutes. I'm sorry, humanity, for that. So I did the math here. I came up with 0.2054148606 seconds of sex your parents conceived you in. Beautiful space, love. Yeah, I got a blister. Yeah. One thing that this book will teach you repeatedly again and again is that sharing is wonderful and past, future, present are all irrelevant. Oh, we'll get there. Yeah, that's, oh my God, that's painful stuff. So you're choosing either a planet called Phonon or a planet called Zermacroid, and it turns out- What a name, right? Oh, both of these planets have a relationship, a flimsy relationship to your father and mother. Brian, tell me about this planet Zermacroid and your mother. Zermacroid, what a name. You can't resist this planet and its unknown past. When the captain mentioned the hope for a bright future, you decided that you must go there. It turns out that it is the home of your mother. She embraces you, wishes you luck, and gives you a small metal object on a chain. Perhaps this will help you sometime. Just as you're about to go for your final briefing, a young member of the flight crew rushes up and says, let me go with you. You will need my help. You don't know him well, but you have always found him warm and helpful. His name is Murma, and his broad smile makes you feel happy about the adventures that lie ahead. Of course he can come. So there's a lot of information there, Bill. Uh, how much of it is relevant to the rest of this book here? Oh my God, none of it. It's, yeah, you would think that there would be this great story about your mother and this necklace, but Brian, you blew me away. You have a theory. You have a, almost like a description of this this uh, strange, strange setup, setup. Uh, to this going to an unknown planet to find out about your roots that doesn't really happen. What's your take on this? When you see somebody <laughs> coughing in the first reel, you know, they're going to die later on in the story. When your mother hugs you, gives you send off to this great journey, gives you symbol of familial love and her bonds. It's gonna wish you luck on this journey. Surely this is going to be relevant in some aspect of this journey throughout space and time. <laughs> it's never mentioned again. Never brought, brought off, off again. again. Not your mother, not a necklace. Neither one. <laughs> nothing, nothing. It might as well never have happened. Not even really this planet, Zermacroid. 
Huh. None of this is almost you never make it to Zermacroid. We have no idea what Zermacroid is like. After I started killing people, I realized they were just fools and I shouldn't be killing them. The MacGuffin. Great. A device where the plot kind of hinges on this thing. Function to send these characters on their way. So, so this is basically not quite a MacGuffin. A pre-MacGuffin? I mean, what would you call this, Bill? Right, I think we need to call this an R.A. Montguffin. <laughs> and I'm really proud of that. Um, but you, you inspired me so much with your un-MacGuffin, R.A. Montguffin, that I really took the ball and ran with it here. And I feel like <laughs> there are several instances of these almost un-MacGuffin logical literary mistakes that just are unprecedented in my reading. You better get the Bible out of the navigation chest. So I've taken the pains to chronicle They're these. pains. They are pains. And I'm calling what you just described the original R.A. Montguffin, but there are several what I want to call Montguffins throughout this book. And as we go through, I'm going to point them out. I'd like to point out one right away from your reading. Zermacroid, what a name. Okay, I'm calling that a Montguffin. You'll have to bury these two. So how does that fit the newly coined Montguffin? Okay, the definition of this particular Montguffin is when a fictional proper noun is commended for its own strangeness by the narrator, the author of said fictional proper noun, omitting the hypocrisy of such a commendation. I'd like to call that either going forward through our, you know, we're going to read lots of R.A. Montgomery books, unfortunately, in the future. Maybe we just call this a Zermacroid. Okay. Or to pat oneself on the Zermacroid. Now, this Murma that's brought up. You start digging a grave. Murma, I love. He has barely a little bit more description than, like, the bear in a winter's tale. (laughs) This guy is so fascinating. You're about ready to leave on this intensely personal journey that, again, makes no sense, but it's your own nonsensical journey. And this guy just shows up and says, I'm coming with. What could I do? It's me against the whole earth. No idea what the relationship is. If you're friends, the barest minimum of characteristics about him, aside from this bizarre name that's more fitted, doesn't Murma conjure like aquatic? Aquatic. It's an aquatic name. It's the most non-space name I can imagine. All you know is he's a good guy. Blow his brains out. You know, you have like indentured servitude or things like that. (laughs) But what happens when you're the one indenturing yourself to someone else? Is that like another term too? Self-indenturing, yeah. That's great. You're right. There's nothing you can do about it now. And uh, what makes this even worse is he never really shows up again in the book. There's like one page where he kind of shows up, but I could understand a flimsy premise for a character befriending you. Yeah. Almost like it's a Sufi tale of like Islamic lore from like 1200 AD, but he never shows up again. I've got to do this myself. He doesn't show up in the beginning. He doesn't show up as he shows up and he never shows up in the rest of the book. He's a space caterpillar that has pearls of wisdom. I don't think he's ever coming back. A fairy god. If he's being chased off of this weird spaceship, fine. No reason to exist. He never says anything or does anything. I had a motorcycle once. One very micro-thin plot strand, he's with you. And basically, if you're stranded in space, well, and Murma's there too. Well, why? Why is he there? And he's one of two and a half characters in this book, and which makes it the best developed he's character. The in best the book. developed character in the book. What did they die of? You won't believe it. What killed them? Chicken. Chickens. Yes, I made tests. 
which made me so furious the first time I read it. And the more you're exposed to this, it's like the frog in the boiling water. You don't realize how crazy this is. I don't know if it's fascinating. It's, it's not quite, maybe it is endearing. Because I kept picturing myself on a desert island. If I only had this book. Oh my God. Every oh my page. God. <laughs> the sky was black overhead. Every time that you flip through this book, well, there's a really fucking insane thing on this page. And then you go to the next page, you're like, my God, there's another just off the wall, batshit crazy, totally logical. Dirty, silly chicken. It isn't right. And after a while, it becomes this rolling ball of chaos. It's like trauma. You know, you just, you want to share it with someone else. It's like having an abusive parent. But like right now, talking to you, like having a sibling that I can talk about it with, you know, years later and we can like heal together. Trusting feelings works sometimes, but this situation is too dangerous. It's probably going to be embarrassing to ask for help so soon after starting out. You notice the palms of your hands and see the drops of sweat on them in their unusual whiteness. No question about it, you are scared. With good reason. Who wouldn't be? Space pod, transgalactic mission to planet Phonon, interrupted by meteor shower. System now three quarters inoperative. Repeat. Coordinate Z2380F9212, X2922, time reference, outer zone 2L, request immediate aid, repeat, request immediate aid. Your voice feels small and hollow as it echoes in the pilot's compartment of the pod. You are so alone. <laughs> you are so terrible at being a, <laughs> a space pilot. Oh my god, yeah, it's like your first mission and you're already crashed, it's so stupid. How about it, Captain? I consider this first paragraph here, Brian. A Montguffin. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, the, the trusting feelings work sometimes, but this situation is too dangerous. That makes no sense. <laughs> it doesn't. There's innumerable weird statements. They're just unquantifiable. What? What are you talking about? Sharing? He's crazy, Captain. Just to name something off the top of my head, these weird thrusts. Bizarre statements. What, what was it again? Off the so the... let me define this for you because the weird thing is trusting feelings work sometimes. sometimes. There's been no reference to trusting feelings before this page that would lead you to even believe this if it didn't. I came up here where I could get angry again. So let me define this for you. Okay, this Montguffin is, bear with me here, I'm going to get mm -hmm. technical. When a gerundized, you know, a ger like trusting feelings, right? Okay, it's like, yeah. When a gerundized soul experience serves as both a predicate and subject, as if it were a clear instance of epicrisis, when in fact, this soul experience is neither a common adage, nor does it follow in either subject or predicate. And as the cherry on top, the soul experience is subsequently betrayed by its own predicate in a morass of vague feeling. I call this, Brian, either chasing Amy with a shot of whiskey, <laughs> Or chasing Amy with a shot of Gin Blossom's new miserable experience. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good, right? Because this trusting feelings, it sounds like, like, like a chasing Amy, deconstructing Harry, like, you know what I mean? All those, mm -hmm. but it makes no sense. Man is sick. So yeah, if we ever encounter some kind of awful, nonsensical gerund like that again, remember, it's a chasing Amy with a shot of Gin Blossom's <laughs> new miserable experience. How long do you think you can hold out? Your mother gives you a necklace that is of no value to the story. Don't go to school, then immediately live or die in a black hole. Spend five minutes with a philosopher slash corporate research tool. Time machine, become a velociraptor. Become invisible on Mars, and amazingly, this is boring. Another crappy Big Bang flashback. Be a caveman for one sentence. Join Starfleet Academy. Research, huh? War of light versus darkness, but literally. All right, Brian, that's uh, all the little uh, 
insane plot points that happen in this section of the story, this Zermacroid section. These two main branches of the story, you can either go to Zermacroid or Phonon. I can see my mother and my father coming to Mars and acting the same way. Going off the top, wow, there's gonna be like two whole worlds. Well, really, there's not. Yeah, you're thinking this science fiction adventure to two cool new worlds. You never get to either of these worlds. Mm -mm. Um, they're just premises to get, let you wander around in space. Yeah, and in Zermacroid, the upshot is you can hang around your favorite pseudo-acquaintance, Murma, but you also have the option of going to Space Academy, which seems cool, I guess, or not. Well, the great thing is the choice, which I think is kind of a great thing. I, I thought about this a lot. If you decide to attend the Space Academy, turn to page 15. Mm -hmm. If you choose to explore the knowledge within yourself, turn to page 16. That's kind of deep for a 10-year-old. Isn't that a really cool option? Literally, which one would you choose? You're 18 years old, you're in outer space. You get to be like a, you know, live your outer space dream. Being earthbound, you think, wow, Space Academy, I want to learn all this space shit. This guy's spent his whole life on space. Do you think too much? Very mathematical and analytical. It doesn't seem like a lot of spirituality. So maybe this is his first instance of looking into his soul or in his own being. Right now I want a security report. You have a, a spiritual guide in the form of this philosopher that for some reason lives on this spacecraft. His name is France. Yes, and he is technically a character. The name of the head of research is France. He tells you that there is an infinity of knowledge stored within all living things from countless past experiences. It sounds crazy, but then you just can't tell. You wonder if you really can call on experiences from past lives. Are there flashes of memory locked in your cells? Are the dreams you have of places you've never been, things you've never done, people you do not know actually experiences from a past life bubbling up within you looking for a way out? Maybe dreams are a real thing. You sense a feeling of calm in the philosopher. Remember my friend, all travel in space accomplishes little. We end where we begin. Parallel lines cross. Time is not real. Try to make the past the present. So the very next thing that, you know, the book tells you is you feel uncomfortable with these thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> especially, right. especially with the thought of parallel lines crossing. I love how that freaks you out. Oh my God. And there'll be no celebration. And this is why you go to Space Academy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, God, what a bummer. Now, if you knew, almost like you're a an angsty youth. Let's pretend you're angsty. You're 18. The Greeks died of mumps. Maybe kind of a you got a girl interrupted kind of thing going on in your life. And maybe you know that the world's philosophy, epitomized by Ferenc, is bullshit. And then you also know Space Academy is some bullshit. Which bullshit do you choose? Yeah, which one do you ascribe? Roman Empire collapsed because of athlete's foot. Because we know, after mm -hmm. having read this book, both options suck. <laughs> Equally and vastly. I think if you were 18, you would see through this bullshit too. You would be like, this world sucks. I just want to die. We didn't even give him a decent excuse for dying. We just gave him chicken. You know? <laughs> Something that, that, I, I, that I, I really don't like, he's telling you how you feel about this. And the whole thing about these Choose Your Own Adventure books is that you get to decide yeah. Your character. Immediately Something. violating that. Yeah, immediately. Hey, you hear that? Say you're like 10 years old reading this, and this guy is telling you that everything with past lives is going to be manifesting dreams. At least it'll be like, okay, that's that's pretty interesting. Okay. 
And then it tells you your first instinct is, no, I don't, yeah, you I don't wanna... feel uncomfortable. You're, it's almost like I didn't know that I needed to feel shame. I'm 10 years old. Yeah. I didn't know that I needed to feel shame being philosophical, and now I do. You've got a different way of seeing things. Now I'm like, oh, you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, I do feel uncomfortable with these heavy thoughts. I don't want to admit that I have heavy thoughts. Spirituality is something to be afraid of. Yeah. So let's get philosophical here. It almost starts out like an interesting paragraph. You get there, then it gets weird, then it gets crazy. Time travel is frightening. When you rush back in time, it is like riding a roller coaster backward, only faster. You can watch the universe through your private porthole. You see stars born and see them die. You see planets spin off into space, comets come and go, supernovas exploding, and all the time, you are not even there. You are but pure energy, counting down in time until you stop at Mars, a planet of a small sun in the Milky Way galaxy, an almost unheard of planet in an insignificant galaxy. When you arrive on Mars, you are invisible and can travel through space, through solid matter, and even into the thoughts of people. What is the cause of revolt on Mars? Who knows? Greed? Famine? Envy? Jealousy? Maybe just an instinctive need of battle, a basic drive to test and fight for the sheer sense of fighting. It's too complex. Everyone has a different answer. They all point to the other guy. All you know is that creatures get killed, cities get destroyed. What a way to live. That's why there is a new way, if only it will work. You are part of the new way. A way of sharing. <laughs> Let's make clear to the listener right now, if we can, this book before this doesn't talk about Mars at all. <laughs> about a battle at Mars, greed, envy, jealousy. No, That nothing. doesn't even come up. All of a sudden he just brings up Mars and the freaking there's no precedent. And then that's the ending. That's even though ending everyone's relating to Earth and nobody knows about Mars. Martians, they're dead. That makes no sense. Oh, it's so terrible. That is some terrible writing. Terrible. You go from this really cool traveling through the universe and Poetic, turning into even. light. It's beautiful. There's some really good sections. Parallel lines crossing. And then all of a sudden, its legs crumble underneath. And this baffling screed, greed and war. Ranting. Terrible. Terrible. Nothing makes sense. Nothing has any descriptive narrative sense and then it turns insane and he heard voices whisper in his mind a new way of sharing what how why when oh god what does that even mean oh i feel so uncomfortable inside like just just even hearing you talk about the writing in it yeah it's just it's horrible it's just horrible it's like a senile old man just yelling at you it's like butchering a pig in a churchyard it reminds me of senility except What's crazy about this is this guy is supposed to have a background in being an editor. So it almost is yeah, like he yeah, was exactly. editing his own book. But imagine a senile old man who's mm -hmm. also a writer, you know, <laughs> would write a book. You would think that the editor would take out the senile parts. And also what makes it crazy is with writing, you could go back and read your own senile parts and take them out. <laughs> while like, you had some crazy shit. Yeah, while you had your yeah. moments of lucidity. But uh, this is like, it, it's insane that he leaves them in. You almost think a book this weird is something like you have to get out. You have to unburden yourself. Yeah. But it's so strange. It doesn't really come from anywhere. I don't understand how it was conceived. It's baffling to me. I don't know where I've been. 
the naked lunch of choose your own adventure books. I mean, it reminds me a lot of, you know, like, like an Ed Wood kind of thing, like, mm -hmm. a, you know, except there isn't that gleeful joy in, uh, in making something. Or like a personality. Yeah, or a you personality. Know, you this like personal stamp, you know, there's no Angora sweaters in here. Maybe that weird disjointedness is his Angora sweater. I mean, I would almost, I would be interested to get somebody to, like a psychologist to read this and, yeah. and like just diagnose him on the autism spectrum. Cause I feel like he's gotta be maybe somewhere in there because of his moral and like emotional strange choices he makes, which we're going to get to. I didn't see my mother and my father coming to Mars and acting the same way. So now that we've uh, gone on to Mars, well, the other logical place is obviously to go back in time and fuck around with some dinosaurs. Sure. You remember studying the mind tapes of the evolution of living things on 12 planets. Earth was one of the planets, and the time period of the dinosaurs always fascinated you. The Cretaceous period when Tyrannosaurus rex lived was a difficult but fascinating time. Suddenly you're there in a world without any human creatures. You are shocked to see that you have become a Velociraptor. Very small in comparison to the Tyrannosaurus rex, and a prey to his voracious appetite. Hiding behind some lush vegetation, you are frightened and hungry, but you don't dare move. Any movement in this world could end in a sudden and violent death. You hear a scuttling sound, and a small protoceratops rushes by, saying, It's all clear now. Tyrannosaurus and that awful tur- <coughs> Tarbosaurus have gone off to quarrel by themselves. Maybe it will give us a break. You cautiously peer out from the bushes and plants, then step gingerly away from your protective shelter. You gain a vantage point to watch Tyrannosaurus and Tarbosaurus locked in a bloody fight. You are horrified as their sharp teeth and powerful arms and legs tear at each other. There is a terrible howling roar of pain, then a crunching sound as Rex succeeds in biting off the head of his enemy. Then, he turns his attention to the surrounding area and spots you. Crazed with bloodlust, he races after you. You'd better get out while you can. You wildly hit some buttons on the time travel mirror you carry in your claw. If you hit the erase button, turn to page 48. If you hit the time return button, turn to page 50. What the fuck does that mean? I have no idea, but let me tell you, this is some madcap choose your own adventure stuff going on here. I feel at home. I feel like maybe Edward Packard wrote this section. This I'm fine. Really cool. They do some dinosaurs up really good here. I like this dinosaur just talking to you for no reason. I love that. You know a T-Rex is going to be there? This guy totally fucking lapped Jurassic Park. Dude, we got to talk about that. Yeah. Velociraptor. When was this book written? 1980. Uh, I thought it was in the 70s, right? Late 19, 70s? Yeah, 1980. January 1980, 1980 this book. So... Uh, clear decade ahead of uh, Jurassic Park. No one was talking about Velociraptors then. Nobody. I didn't even no know. One. In all my childhood books of dinosaurs, there was nary a mention of a Velociraptor. This is the first maybe human instance of, fictional instance of Velociraptors. The unknown world of tomorrow. So imagine in Jurassic Park, the Velociraptors hanging out and some dinosaurs like, hey man, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> and talks into his claw, like yeah, has like a, a like, buttons and a race button, thing. like a VHS. 
remote control in his arm. That's crazy. I know. I, I got sick. That's something else I love about this book. I want to hate it, but there's so many little instances of just weird madness. It's a special kind of crazy. Probably my favorite choice in this whole book. Bill, you're, 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 a, you're a velociraptor, first of all. Cool. You have this time travel meter in your claw. Cool. Not on your weird wrist. It's you're right, it's in, in your, your claw. claw. That's even better. I don't even know how that works. Yeah. Neither one of these things makes sense. <laughs> Sets up the the climax of the book for me because it oh everything I feel about this story in a nutshell crystallizes. All right, crazy Jake. You flee just in time to escape the brute. However, the erase button you hit doesn't really lead to anywhere or any time. You radio for help and direction. Suddenly, you're back in a space pod headed for Phonon. Oh no, it's beginning all over again. You can't stand it. The you can't stand it is so funny. How fucking brilliant is that? Never mind. It's exactly everything I felt when I was reading this the first time. Totally frustrated and just flabbergasted. Completely enraged by this book. Rip the skin off. It's like, yes, I feel like... Do you remember your song, Time Traveling Dinosaur Says Fuck This? <laughs> A time traveling dinosaur. It's like playing shoots and ladders. Yep, you're a kid, you're almost to the end, and you get down that chute, and you're just like, oh, this is horrible. Except it's here, it's the emotional pain of reading this book again. It just walked up and slugged me. You can't stand it. You can't stand it. I don't know why a narrator would say that. <laughs> so, so imagine two titles for this book. On one hand, it's Face and Beyond. And the other. Maybe that was the working title for this book. What? You can't oh, you can't stand it? Stand it? <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. It was a shame to the spectacle the whole crew was making. He's, he's, he takes very weird stances and very weird positions, especially on this plague world. Yeah, definitely. Space, space genocide. genocide. You, you got, got a problem, problem with, with that? that? Doctors, Doctors without, space, without borders. space borders. After some further bullshit mechanical failures to your spaceship, you are rescued by the tractor beam of a medical research station, RS-3UGB, which sounds way cooler than it is. The planet Axel is beset by plague, also fever, vague space delegates, pollution, a bad thing, angry gods, ethnic cleansing, the word incredible used as a sentence, twice. Space cops hunt you because you're sick, trip acid to three moods. All right, Brian, we're at this weird planet called Axel, and it has its strange plague. Uh, what'd you think of this section? So much of this book is fucking around on your spaceship, but it was actually like a... It's nothing to do with science fiction or no, space. I, I, you want no part of this freak show. Narrative plot all of a sudden. It was a like possible this, plot. It was like this warm hug. Lord Byron, what? Wow, we're actually going to get into something. My human, the humanity within me kind of lit up for a second and yeah. I thought, okay, sentient beings who are sick, there's a plague. Yeah. I know how this goes. There's a story here. You want to rescue the people. This little ember being fanned. Oh yeah, come on, light. And he Let's pours fire. cold water on it almost <laughs> immediately. <laughs> it's not a question of if, it's how it's going to fall apart. There was not a sound beneath the crystal towers. And then Biggs was sick. The setup was really cool. Dread, this unknown. It almost has this alien vibe. So when you when you come up into this planet, I thought it was one of the best choices in the book. Coming from this other world as the, the space traveler, you are possibly immune to this plague on this planet, but it's 
up to you if you're immune or not, which is kind of a neat spin. Well, do you want to be? Yeah, I thought that was crazy. Yeah, he doesn't. The choices are if you think you are immune, turn to page 59. If not, turn to 61. Why would you th think you're, uh, you're in immunity? Why would you think I am susceptible to an illness? I don't, I don't, why, yeah, why is it up to your th power of thought? The way it's presented, it's yeah. like, well, do you think you should be? Well, well, maybe I do. I don't know. There's a lot of choices in this book, too, that are repetitions of, do you believe this is happening? Are, are you sure this is going to happen? I, thought, I always thought it was Tom Sawyer. Do you want to stop? Why? Pull away from what you're doing? Fight what's happening? Or go along with it? You are immune to the strange disease on Axel. The doctors and scientists confirm that your biochemical makeup will not be affected by the fever below. Down you go in a small transporter with three other immune members of the crew. When you go down into this planet and you see this plague is wreaked havoc. This planet is through. There's a really awesome exchange. Do you, do you want to act this out, Bill? Do you want to do like a little bit of I choose do. your own adventure theater here? Weird, isn't it? Yeah. It's like the whole city is dead. Look at that guy over there. Why, he's barely able to walk. Like I said, it's weird. There has to be a cause for it, though. I mean, it's affecting everyone. All right. So, Brian, this insane dialogue to me is a Montguffin. Uh, I call this when a writer creates a fictional genocide, mass murder, plague, or other atrocity, but is morally tone deaf to his own creation and an act of baffling inhumanity. I call this eating hibachi and drinking Nagasaki. So I've got a solution to how they can solve this plague problem, Bill. I'm gonna tell you how you solve it. Yeah, please. Kill 10% of the population in a ritual sacrifice. Which is an option he gives to a child. <laughs> I was a child reading this book and I had the option to sacrifice 10% of a population of a planet. But we found the bodies, thousands of bodies. He immediately takes this detour and is like, well, who would do that? Yeah, it's gonna kill everybody anyway. It's so madness. Imagine that board meeting talking to the Axel heads of state. Well, I got I got an idea here. Nah, you're not gonna be interested. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's madness. Uh, there is an interesting ending where you cure the disease. There's a really cool ending. And you um, know what? I I didn't even I didn't even find it. You told me, I'm like, what? Yeah, it's almost like hiding. You get to like lay out underneath these three moons of the planet Axel and just kind of like bliss out, trip acid, and, um, it, and it heals you. And just don't eat no solid food and, and, only no solid foods. and only moderate liquids. Simple, ancient, and effective. You are cured and the future lies before you. Great ending. That's my favorite ending in the book. It's a great illustration too. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, good. Very large, like what do they look like? Sunflowers or something? It very looks like the movie Cocoon, basically. It's like these old people laying out and just kind of like sunbathing. I have one more Montguffin here, Brian. What you got? Um, okay, this sentence bothers me a lot. <laughs> Which sentence bothers you a lot? Out of the radar oven and into the laser beam. Out of the radar oven and into the laser beam. Do you remember reading this? They say that? It fills me with freaking so much I anger. Thought, I thought that was one of your notes. I'll knock your teeth out. That's no. actually in the book? It's in the book. Out of the radar oven and into the laser beam. Now, first of all, I did some Googling of this because I thought maybe I misremembered this um, cliche. 
and it's out of the frying pan and into, into the, the fire. fire, right? Yeah, that made me question myself. So here, here's my definition of this. When a popular adage, apothem, or moral to a fable is recast in technological jargon, however, the adage is failed at in a kind of phrasal melaprovism. Finally, as a third and ultimate vice, the techno jargon is poorly chosen in its correspondence to the folksy adage, and so a remnant of the folksy adage remains to shoehorn comprehension into the incomprehensible writing. I like that. Yeah, that's got a good ring to I it. I also came up with micro soft serve. Micro soft serve. Um, also, maybe just because of R.A. Montgomery and it's almost a melopropism, a montapropism. Oh, I like that too. Yeah, it's, they're all kind of good there. We'll have to decide I'm later. I'm going to stick with uh, people right in and see which one they like the best. Yeah, but out of the radar oven and into the laser beam, I just, it filled me with rage. I screamed in my house. I warned you. Yeah, I don't want to reenact it, but I yelled at, to no one. Now imagine the long blade of a machete trapped on a desert island with this book. Oh, God. <laughs> Got the, the big, long beard going, coconuts for a month. There's three moons, and you're just mulling this over in your mind. I'm seeing things all right. You're going to turn on this? You're going to start appreciating this? <laughs> You're going to reject it even even harder. Oh my god, I don't even know. Yeah, that's a great question. I just know it would drive me mad. It would drive me mad. I just know it would drive me mad. You know, you know, um, I, was, I, was, I was driving back yesterday. I was listening to the radio. They were talking about this new box set, the Glenn Gould... Goldberg variations. Did you ever hear those? Of course. So it's got all these outtakes, you know, so you can hear him flubbing. He's bitching about the piano, like, who tuned it this this morning? Ah. And all these things. And it's just kind of funny, like, you don't think of classical music. Never imagine it happening. So I wanted to listen to it today, just kind of listen to those in the background. On YouTube, one of the comments, strange comment. I wasn't sure what to make of it, so I'm gonna tell you and see what kind of vibe you yeah. get. So everyone's like. So one guy writes, God gave you a hand to play list, but you used this hands to play Bach. Wow. I was thinking about that all day. Like Franz list? Is that what he means? Yeah, I imagine so. God gave you a hand to play list, but you used this hands to play Bach. Wow. God, yeah, it's like Basho. Yeah. But with with the vengefulness of Sylvia Plath. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know, I have this friend who plays uh, uh, classical piano, yeah. and he, he says that he had an accident, but his story always sounds suspiciously similar to Shine. Like the plot of Shine, <laughs> so I'm not sure if I believe him or okay. not. But he says that he, classical musicians have the worst accidents. Yeah, and he claims to have lost some ability to play piano. But he's talked to me for hours about how much he hates Mozart. Wow, it, 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 it would drive me mad. I just know.
reading roulette. Thanks for listening to another episode of Reading Roulette. The world's only choose your own adventure literary podcast. Shoot us an email, readingroulette.podcast at gmail.com. Or give us a like on Facebook at uh, Reading Roulette Podcast. For Reading Roulette and Brian Ward, I'm Bill Lyon. Do you try to sign off for a minute, but we'll be back if they smash the head again. Our next section is a narrative black hole. <laughs> <laughs>